Look over to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, if you're visiting with us today, we've embarked on, I don't know, a 10-week series expositing through the book of Jonah. And maybe you have heard about the religious father whose son was studying for the ministry. And the young man had decided to go to Europe for an advanced degree. And as he was on his way to Europe, his father worried that his simple faith would be spoiled by sophisticated, unbelieving professors. Don't them, don't let them, the father said, take Jonah away from you. Figuring the swallowed by a great fish story might be the first part of the Bible to go. Well, the son went, and two years later, he came back, he returned, and his father asked him, do you still have Jonah in your Bible? And the son just laughed, Jonah? He says, that story isn't even in your Bible. And the father replied, it certainly is. What do you mean? And again, the son laughed, it's not in your Bible. Would you show it to me? And the father fumbled through the Bible looking for the book of Jonah, but he couldn't find it. At last, he checked the table of contents for the proper page. And when he turned there, he discovered the three pages comprising Jonah had been carefully cut out, uh, for, cut out of his Bible. And the son said to him, I did it before I went away. And he said to his father, what's the difference between losing the book of Jonah through studying under non-believers or your losing it through neglect? Now, I don't encourage any of you to do that with your father's Bible this morning, but there's truth there. Unless we neglect this wonderful book, I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Jonah, to the book of Jonah. And we've been studying thus far just the events of his life. And we begin with the call of Jonah in 1, 1 and 2. Look there, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. He called, as you well know, as we've been studying this for the last couple of weeks, Jonah, who was a prophet to the northern kingdom, who prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam in 2 Kings 14.25. And I think it's interesting, when you look at that text, he prophesied the expansion of the borders of Israel. And now, that was not only going to expand, if you will, in land, if you will, but expand here with the people of the Ninevites. And of course, the Ninevites, and I took some time that first week to describe that they were Israel's bitter enemies. But you know from the call of just of Jonah, we went secondly to the disobedience of Jonah. It says in verse 3 that he rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Three different times he rose to flee to Tarshish, and instead of going kind of northeast on, its way, on his way to Nineveh, he got a, sh- uh, you know, a ship and boarded it and went straight east, we think, to the end of the known world, most likely to the southern tip of Spain, 2,500 miles away. And so he called him the disobedient prophet. You got a call, you've got the disobedient prophet. And then last week we looked at the perfect storm. And we noted in verse 4, look, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. 
And we noted there that it was the Lord who hurled that great wind and the, the ship was literally just breaking up, woods coming apart. It's splintering in its ability to take them on their way to Tarshish. And we said that the Lord put together the perfect storm. And they reacted by each crying out to their own God. And where was Jonah in the midst of that? In one five, he was sleeping in the bottom of the boat. They, the mariners begin to interrogate him. What country are you from? And finally, he confessed to them that he was a Hebrew. In fact, look at verse 9. He said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then we left off at the solution that he gave to them because they asked in verse 11, what shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And I think we get the idea. These are rugged mariners. These guys are seafaring men, but they knew they were fighting against something that they have never seen before. They're fighting against God himself. So here was a solution. Look at verse 12. This is where we left off. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me, Jonah said, that this great tempest has come upon you. The solution was just throw me overboard. Now, in my reading this week, it was kind of funny to think that Jonah was making a sacrifice. And as, the, as Jonah sacrificed himself to save the mariners in typology-like fashion, Jesus Christ went to the cross for us to save sinners from the wrath of God. And I thought to myself, nothing could be further from the truth. His solution had nothing to do with his sacrifice. His solution had nothing even to do with his disobedience. I supposed when they asked him, what could we do? He could have said, listen, here's the problem. My name is Jonah, the prophet of that living God that I described. He told me to go to Nineveh, and we're on our way down to Tarshish. Take this boat and turn it around and get me on a straight course all the way to the shoreline, basically maybe of Joppa, and I will go on my way to Nineveh. He doesn't say anything of the kind. Remember, we said last week he'd rather die than obey the will of God. In fact, frankly, and I don't know another way to say it, he's a racist. He is, right? I mean, you think that's a pretty strong statement. I don't know another way to say it. Go to Nineveh? Are you kidding me, God? I can't go to those people. Those are our bitter enemies, and I describe those war atrocities. He couldn't understand it. He couldn't fathom it. And so rather than obeying the will of God, he disobeys God and heads east instead of going northwest. And the solution was, I'd rather die than obey the word of God. And so we come now to this closing section of chapter one. As we move real quickly through this book, I'm looking this morning with you at 1, 13 through 17. And I've called it man overboard. And I want to look at man overboard through a sequence of events that reveals, and it's there in your notes, God's relentless mercy to the Ninevites. And after they hear Jonah's solution, the mariners make a desperate move to save this one runaway prophet. So if you're taking notes there, the mariners row with determination. They row with determination. Look at the text. It says, nevertheless, even after he told them that in 12, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. 
for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now, you can get the picture. He says, if you chuck me over, if you hurl me over, this raging sea will cease. But rather than listening to his solution, they row hard. And I I think it's interesting, that word, if you can picture this, to row hard is literally the word in Hebrew to dig. So these men, rather than throwing them overboard, they lock in. They lock in and grab their oars, and I'm assuming that it's a fairly large Phoenician boat that were made in those days going east. And, you know, I'm not picking a man, you know, on the side of a canoe like this, but I'm picking those rowers, if you will, in those big ships where they've got those oars in their hand, and the text just says, man, they're digging. It's the word for digging through a wall or digging into a tunnel. Man, they grip in when he says, throw me over. They want to spare his life. And so they ignore Jonah's previous comment. They do not desire to take his life. And as I've said to you the last couple of weeks, absolute irony here again. You say, how so? Well, the mariners or the sailors are more concerned with Jonah's life than Jonah himself for the great city of Nineveh on its way to judgment. Think about it this way. The mariners are more concerned for the one Jonah, then Jonah is, frankly, for hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, it's, it, the irony is unbelievable. They're helping his one life at the expense of theirs, while he has no passion and no pity on, I think it would say, fair to say, hundreds of thousands. You've got 120,000 people at the end of the book who don't know their right hand from their left hand, which I said last week I presume to be children. You've got hundreds of thousands of people, and here these mariners, if you will, are rowing with determination, and it became, as they did, more tempestuous. They're rowing against God. So I take it from the the mariners row with determination. Secondly, to the mariners' cry of desperation. Their cry of desperation. It's there in verse 14. Therefore, as they realized it was against them, they called out to the Lord. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done it as you pleased. And so there's a cry of desperation. Now, you can see from the text here that they're crying out, if you will, in desperation to the Lord. There's a progression here. Look back in verse 5. When they were afraid there of the mighty tempest on the sea, verse 5 says the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And so they're praying to a host of gods, but not here. Their prayers are now directed to the one who can save them, if you will, almighty God. They are praying to the Lord, but not Jonah. Isn't that more irony? This is ironic to the max, if you will, because Jonah has never, at least in the text, prayed yet, though he claimed to fear God, though he claimed to worship God. And their cry of desperation is centered on two requests. They don't want to perish. You can see it there in the text on account of this man's life. In other words, they're crying out to the Lord, if you will, do not let us die because of this disobedient man. Do not hold us responsible for casting this man overboard. And in that same vein, do not lay on us innocent blood. And so there's a great, great 
problem on board. And here they recognize they are in deep, deep trouble. In fact, they understood, verse 9, that their Jonah's God was the God of the sea and the land. And then they acknowledge, you do as you please. They acknowledge the perfect storm. And so they row with determination. They're rowing. They're digging in. They cry out in desperation. And then thirdly, would you look, they carry out his execution. Verse 15, look at it. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And then instantly the sea ceased from its raging. They carry out his execution. They threw Jonah in the deep end. I mean, just imagine that. And I think there's more irony here again. You say, how so? Well, as God hurled the storm upon the sea to start the raging storm, the sailors, the mariners now hurl Jonah overboard to stop the raging storm. And as soon as Jonah hit the water, the storm stopped. It, the, the raging immediately stopped. And it must have been a little eerie out there on the waterway, don't you think? Remember when Christ healed that storm and when he calmed that storm, it just went to a, just a, just a quiet stop. Imagine them rowing, digging, 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 digging those. They can't do anything. They're fighting against God himself, Yahweh. And as soon as they pick up Jonah to hurl him in, it completely stops. And boy, they must have went back to their families after that trip and said, boy, you'll never believe what happened at work or on this trip. And so here they are, rowing with determination, crying out in desperation. They carry out his execution. And then look, number four here, they express their devotion. They express their devotion. Look at it in verse 16. Then the, mere, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, I, This is a very interesting thought here. They feared the Lord exceedingly. You would tend to think that after the storm was calmed, that all their fears would be relieved. But the opposite is the case. The storm stops raging, and now, the text says, they feared the Lord exceedingly. Do you remember when Jesus Christ, in Mark chapter 4, calmed the storm, After the storm was calm, it said very clearly there that when they got, you know, when it it calmed down, they were even more afraid. And remember, that's when they said, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him. Same effect here. This storm stops its raging, but these men, as you can see it there in verse 16, they express their devotion. Now, Jonah wants us to see this as, as he writes it, okay, because Look at the progression of fear. Look at verse 5. It says after, in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There's a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Watch this. Verse 5. The mariners were afraid. So they're afraid there. Look at verse 9. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then verse 10, the men were afraid exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? Now for the third time, again in verse 16, the men feared the Lord 
exceedingly, okay? So their, their fear is progressing all through the text into a reverent worship for the true and living God. In fact, look at the statement again in verse 16. They feared the Lord exceedingly. So they go from progressing from fearing the storm to fearing the God of the storm, and their fear has a name here. Look at it again in verse 16. They feared the Lord. They're fearing Yahweh. They're fearing the God who made the sea and, if you will, the dry land. And then in a very, I don't know, I don't know if I'd say it's bizarre, but look at the text again at verse 16. After they feared the Lord exceedingly, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and the text says that they made vows. Now, there's some question as to when this took place. There are some scholars who believe this took place when the ship returned to dry land, that the sacrifices weren't uh, you know, available to them on a ship. And when they got back, if you will, maybe when they landed at Tarshish, they made vows and sacrificed to the Lord. Now, some people would even ask the question, did these men become believers? What do you think? I mean, look at the text there in verse 16. They feared the Lord. And what's interesting is they went from fearing God their little God, little G, to fearing Yahweh. And it says it three times. And then not only do they fear God, but now they sacrifice and make a vow. One very conservative scholar doesn't believe they became believers. He said, Douglas Stewart, he said they may have just added Yahweh to their God shelf. In other words, they got little gods, little G in our mind, but they just added Yahweh to their God shelf. Some would actually say that these mariners returned to Jerusalem as believers, that they were, no, full-on, in their mind, converted. And James Boyce and many other conservative scholars believe these sailors were saved and that even in Jonah's disobedience, God was accomplishing his purpose to save these mariners. Now, the reason that some of the scholars believe that is the evidence follows. And again, what followed is, is that it is Jehovah, not their foreign God, they fear. They sacrifice and make vows are a response, if you will, to the character of God. So again, there's more irony here. Jonah says he fears the Lord, but he acts inconsistent with his profession, contrasted to these pagan sailors who now respond in genuine fear. It's incredible. So they express their devotion, and then we come full circle. Look at the text as it closes out in verse 17. And the Lord, I love this phrase, appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so here you have it. They row with determination. They cry out in desperation. They carry out his execution. They express their devotion. And now here, fifth, here is God's appointed intervention. Okay? It's his appointed intervention. You can see it there in verse 7. The Lord appointed a great fish. Now that word, therefore appointed, 
is used four times just in this book, in the book of Jonah. And it points to the Lord's power to carry out his sovereign purpose. The first time it's used is here. You could see it in verse 17. Look again. And the Lord appointed here a great fish. So God's sovereign, if you will, over the fish and the sea. Look over to chapter 4. It's used a second time in verse 6. You can't help but see it. Where there it says that the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. In other words, it just came up supernaturally because just as the Lord appointed the fish, here in 4.6, he appointed a plant. Look at verse 7. And when the dawn came up, and I'm in chapter 4, verse 7, when the dawn came up the next day, here it is again, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered away. So he appointed the great fish, he appointed the plant, he appointed the worm, and then fourth, look, in verse 8, chapter 4, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching wind. And so here is God's appointed intervention with the great fish. Now, again, I think it's irony here because each of these entities, the fish, the plant, the worm, and the scorching wind, you got to see this. They're all obeying God except who? Jonah. You, You talk about absolute stubbornness. The wind obeys them. The plant obeys them. The worm obeys him. The great fish obeys him, but not Jonah. He's so stubborn that he's down in the, in below in the boat. I mean, I'm just thinking of biblical revelation. Balaam's donkey is more obedient than Jonah. Daniel's lions devoured God's enemies, but not Jonah. He's the stubborn prophet. Now, look what the text says and go back to chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish, it says, to swallow up Jonah. And perhaps this is one of the most famous accounts in all of the Bible. And certainly as Bible-believing Christians, we believe it. But some point to this verse as a reason for not believing the Bible. Have you ever met people who, who talk about Jonah, who talk about, can we really follow this? And they point to this. And it is often the miracle that is singled out amongst the critics as the Achilles heel for their unbelief. And so they would read this as we just read it and say, this is allegorical. They would say, this is legendary. This is not historical truth. However, believing Jonah is not an option for us. For Jesus himself believed it and made it the focus of the doctrine of the resurrection. You don't have to turn there. Matthew 12, 40, Jesus said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So in other words, just as he was there before his resurrection, Jonah was in, and so Jesus Christ proclaims the truthfulness of this. So what do we make of this great fish? Did the fish really swallow Jonah? And I would just say it's a miracle. I mean, you wouldn't have a hard time with me, would you? If God can create the world (laughs) with a word, if he can raise Jesus Christ from the dead, then we can certainly 
believe this account. It's right there in the scripture. Now look again with your eyes again. Interesting. I want to be clear here. Look what the Lord appointed here in his sovereignty. It's very clear, and I'm reading from the ESV, which is the which is a clear translation of the Hebrew, he appointed, it says there, a great fish. And he uses the Hebrew term, it's dag is the word, and it refers to a great fish. It refers, if you will, to a broad range of sea creatures. But it's not just a fish. Look at it again in verse 17. He appoints a great fish. And the word gadal there is used. And it refers to large in size. Large enough to swallow a man. In fact, the word is used that was used back in Matthew 12, 40 for Jonah's appointment where just as he was three days and three nights, there in the, in the language of the New Testament, it was a katos. It very clearly, it is a large fish. It does not say here in the text that it was a whale. Now, it could have been a whale, but it doesn't have to be a whale in our modern, you know, translation of the taxonomy of these kind of species would now say it's a whale, but that, you know, our taxonomy predates what they had, it, or it's after what we had here. It just means a large fish. Now, follow me here just for a second. I don't want to strain this too far. And I don't want to take us beyond the point. And I want you to keep in your mind, what's the point of the passage here? Because some claim that in seeking to defend this miracle by external sources, it degenerates the miracle itself. Okay? In other words, if you try to explain this miracle, it would de- degenerate the miracle itself. In other words, it kind of shows a defensive posture, if you will. And I actually think that's true. I mean, I don't think we need to defend it, do you? I mean, if it says it in the Bible, I believe it. If Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead. You have eyewitness accounts seen by over 500 people in the Bible. If it says that he went down and the whale swallowed him or the fish, great fish swallowed him, then we believe that. And I don't think it needs explanation, if you will. In fact, one scholar conservative scholar said a miracle, whatever it is, quote, is a divine act beyond human replication or explanation, end of quote. I think he's right. When you talk about the supernatural entering into the natural, you don't really have an explanation for that, nor can you reproduce that or even explain that. In other words, it needs no explanation. But spare me just for a moment, because I read an article And it's a very interesting article. It's nearly 100 years old now. And it was called The Sign of the Prophet Jonah and its Modern Confirmations. And it was published in 1927 in the Princeton Theological Review. And then later it was put into the Encyclopedia Britannica, which to us, that doesn't mean anything to me really, does it to you? I mean, if it's in the Bible, I believe it. I don't need the Encyclopedia Britannica to tell me something, but I'm just interested in it. And if you tell me this is a waste of time, tell me afterward if I shouldn't have told you this. Because here's how the article concludes itself. It says, quote, and I'm laughing, it says, the story of Jonah occurs in Hebrew literature and tradition as a historical record which is true. It's a historical record. It said it can hardly be disputed that the tests applied to it are in fairness bound to be the most careful, accurate, and dispassionate that science and history can supply. 
It said that physiological tests entirely disprove the alleged impossibility of the story. Now, okay, you know, we get that. If, if he, but here's what it went on to say, and this is what I thought was interesting. It says, a generation ago, one heard that a whale could not swallow Jonah simply because its throat was too small. Have you ever heard that? There was a time back 100 years ago that people would say, oh, that, you, you can't, that can't happen, okay? Because a whale, some would say, a certain species of whale, had, a di- had difficulty swallowing, quote, an orange was the viewpoint, okay? And the objection arose from the failure at that point to distinguish between the Greenland whale which actually does have a very small throat and which the whale was best known to the seamen of an earlier generation. Okay, however, that's not the only whale there is. There's a whale called the sperm whale or what is known as a cachalot, which has an enormous mouth, an enormous throat, and an enormous stomach. And if you're looking at the dimensions of a sperm whale, the average specimen of the sperm whale might have, do you think it can swallow a guy? An average count has a mouth 20 feet long, 15 feet high, and 9 feet wide. And beloved, that is a mouth that would be larger than most rooms in the average size house. There's just no, no, there's just, this could happen. Okay, so some whales, no, they got a small structure. Somebody couldn't get down, but not in these guys. This is possible. You say, did it ever happen? Well, you can talk about this at Grace Group if you want, okay? Sir Francis Fox, you heard of him? He's got an interesting account. Now, I don't need this to prove it, but I, and you tell me afterward if it wasn't good. But in February, have you read this? 1891, the whaling ship called the Star of the East was near a place called the Falkland Islands. And the lookout sighted a large sperm well three miles away. So two boats were launched, and in a short time, one of the harpooners was able to spear the fish. And the second boat attacked the whale, but was upset by a lash of its tail, and the men thrown into the sea, one man drowned, one man did drown, and the other one, by the name of James Bartley, having disappeared, could not be found. And the whale was killed, and in a few hours, it was lying, if you have those pictures in your mind, on the ship's side, and the crews were busy. They're there with axes, and they're there with spades, removing the blubber, and they worked all day and all night. The next morning, they attached some tackle to the stomach of this whale, which was hoisted on the deck, and the sailors were startled by something which gave spasmodic signs of life, and inside was found the missing sailor doubled up and unconscious. (laughs) He was laid on the deck and treated to a bath of seawater, which soon revived him, and he remained two weeks a raving lunatic, the account said. At the end of the third week, though, he entirely recovered from the shock and resumed his duties. And Bartley affirmed that he would probably have lived inside the house of flesh until he starved. 
for he had lost his senses through fright and not from lack of air. He remembers, this is what he says, he remembers the sensation of being thrown out of the boat into the sea. He was then encompassed by a great darkness and he felt that he was slipping along the smooth passage of some sort that seemed to move and carry him forward. He felt about him and his hands were in contact with a yielding, slimy substance that seemed to shrink away from his touch. It finally dawned upon him that he had been swallowed by the whale. He could easily breathe, but the heat, he said, was terrible. Okay? His skin was exposed to the action of the gastric juice. Face, neck, hands were bleached, they said, to a deadly whiteness, and it took on the appearance of parchment, never recovered, he said, its natural appearance, though otherwise his health did not seem affected by the terrible experience. Can you imagine? Hey, that's James Bartlett over. God, the guy's white. The dude's pasty. What? Oh, yeah, he spent three days. Oh, I don't know how long it was. He spent some time in, in, you know, in, the, in the belly of, a, of a, a whale. Now, listen, I don't need that to orchestrate this, okay? But why? Because we believe the Scripture, okay? And what's more amazing than a man getting swallowed was God's sovereignty of appointing this fish, appointing the fish at the right time, in the right place, in the right circumstances, and it swallowed up Jonah whole, okay? So here's the account. They row with determination. They cry out in desperation. They carry out his execution. They express their devotion. And then there's God's orchestrated intervention, okay? But to you, what's the point? (laughs) Why this account? Why is it in the Bible? And what does God want you to take away from it? Now, what's fascinating to me, this is just for free, okay, is you look in all the Bible books, what account in all of the Bible has the most pictures to it to children's Bibles? This one. This one. Now, is that wrong or right? No, I'm not saying anything if it's wrong or right. But I'm saying this one has more pictures than any other miracle account. But I'm asking you this morning, because that's the whole goal, of what's the purpose here? It's not really about a fish. You know that. It's not really about Jonah. It's not about Jonah. We call it the book of Jonah. It's about God, though, isn't it? And so when you think of the take-home today, the great fish is a lesson about what? That's the key. It's a lesson, let me say it again, of the mercy of God. The mercy of God. This fish, if you will, is God's appointed intervention. You got to see the heart of God in this. To preserve Jonah. And you say, well, why would he preserve Jonah? You got to keep reading. We'll keep expositing. Here's why. That the Ninevites might hear the glorious gospel proclaimed, right? That's the point. He's preserving this one man this prophet, to be obedient. It's not even about Jonah. It's not about the fish. It's about God's mercy that he's got the Ninevites there, 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left hand. This is about the mercy of God. He's appointing this intervention for this man that the wicked Ninevites might hear the message of the gospel and it might steer them away from the judgment that would be swiftly brought to them. And so here is this great fish, right place, right time, made for just such a time to provide the prophet a one-way ticket back to Nineveh to preach the good news of the gospel. 
One writer, and I'm thinking this is okay if it's kind of funny, he was on a railway express, okay? Okay, um, lock that in. And, and he takes him right back, and we'll take that up next week. But this is what it's all about. It's God's relentless mercy that is to be displayed. You say, where do you get that? Well, look at it again. We looked at it last week. Chapter 4, here's where it is. Here's where it, where it talks about that kind of mercy. It's there in chapter 4, where it says, remember all the city got saved? We'll talk about that. The greatest revival in the history of the world. He preached and they all got saved. And you'd think he'd be so happy, but for one, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was what? He's ticked. I, I, that may be not a good word. He's angry. You say, why is he angry? Because for two, he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Oh, there it is. He knew that God was merciful, and so he didn't want to go, so he disobeyed, if you will, his divine call and escaped from it or sought to it. And here's the point that God is pursuing, or he pursues relentlessly one man that he might preach the gospel to their wicked enemies. Let me just ask you, and and this is what I'm asking in my own heart, is that your heart for people? I mean, we can say they hated them, and I went into that the first chapter, their war atrocities. But when you look at people, and you think about the community in which we live, and the men think about the men that they'll minister to today in the prison, how do you view people? How do you view God's mercy? How do you view God's pity? Are you that way? Do you have, do I have the heart of God for people that look different than you, that act different than you, that carry themselves different from you, that look differently in whatever it might be. Listen, I just pray this is about Jonah, but it's about us because I think we carry that attitude. We want God to save a certain type of people, but not the people we don't think should be saved. You know, save people that are like us, like young families with kids. But don't worry about his mercy in a broad category. Don't worry about his mercy to a group of rebellious teenagers that can't find their way. Don't worry about a people that are on meth or on cocaine or whatever it may be because you know what? Maybe that's not for us. Listen, God loves those people just like he loves you, doesn't he? And you know what? Somewhere in here, Israel forgot. Were they the recipients of his mercy? (laughs) They were the recipients of his mercy, but somewhere in their pride, they thought they were special and that Jonah thought, God, I get your justice, but I want your justice to be displayed on this nation. I want you to wipe this nation off. And God says, no, I'm going to send you to save this nation. In the early hours of October 16th, 1946, a Lutheran minister, have you heard of him? His name is Henry Gorecki, okay? Lutheran minister, 1946. You're picturing the war. 
He paid a visit to members of a small congregation since the men he was visiting were about to be executed for committing the vilest crimes imaginable. One by one, Gorecki walked with the congregants to the gallows. And when the noose was placed over the first man's head, he was asked for his last words and he gave testimony to his faith in Jesus Christ. This one man said, quote, I place all my confidence in the lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul, end of quote. His name of that particular man was Joachim von Ribbentrop. And until the previous year, he had been the foreign minister of Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany. And when first visited by Gorecki in the Nuremberg prison where the war crimes you know, trials were taking place, Ribbentrop had listed a long string of objections to the Christian faith. But under the faithful preaching of the gospel in the prison chapel, he had been thoroughly converted and saved. That's what the account says. But not all of Gorecki's parishioners were converted. One of them was a man by the name of Hermann Goring, who was the chief of the German army and Hitler's closest colleague. And Goring also attended chapel, but when Gorecki visited him on the last evening, Goring mocked Christianity, and within minutes after the pastor left him, Goring had committed suicide. But others, the account says, were more like Ribbentrop. And when Gorecki first visited the cell of a a field marshal, Wilhelm Keitel, chief of the German armed forces, he found Keitel reading his Bible and professing Christ. Two others, Fritz Sockel, the Nazi head of labor supply, described as one of the cruelest slave masters since Pharaoh, and William Frick, who was a minister of an interior, oversaw the reign of terror that had targeted many Christians, went to the scaffold confessing their sins and asking forgiveness from God through faith in Christ. Chaplain Gorecki accepted eight, this is how they would say it, eight of the Nazi war criminals at the Lord's table on the basis of their credible profession of faith in Christ. Now, I don't know how that meets your ears, but not everybody was prepared to accept that. Not everybody was prepared to accept the mercy of God to what we would deem the vilest of sinners, okay? Because when Gorecki returned to America, he received abusive letters for even ministering to the Nazis in Germany who were responsible for inflicting atrocities on people. Abusive letter, what are you doing? What what are you doing? These people deserve judgment. How do you look at it? It's not about me. It's not about our church. It's about you. How do you look at it? How do you look at people? Is your God and his mercy and his pity, can it extend to people like that? Because listen, I'm sure if Jonah had been living in 1946, I'm sure he would have sent his own letter. Wipe them off. Annihilate them extinguish him. Look what they've done to people. And I don't mean in any way to take away from the pain of what's happened to so many families in that atrocity. 
But what I was convicted of is our own view of the people that surround us and our own view of what you conceive of God's mercy. And what I'm telling you is his mercy and his compassion and his pity is often beyond ours often beyond ours, and may God enlarge our hearts, okay? Now, one thing I would say, as Jonah disobeyed God's clear command, he, he got him on the right way eventually. We have one, as I prayed, always who has obeyed, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? As Jonah was, over, was thrown overboard clearly, for not for his sacrifice, but for his disobedience, our Lord was obedient by being nailed to the cross, as he was in the belly of that great fish three days and three nights, if you will, our Lord was three days, three nights into the heart of the earth. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And so Jonah, if you will, according to Matthew twelve forty, in the fish prefigured our Lord's death on the cross and his time in the grave before the resurrection. Listen, as we close our service out, I want you to think about God's mercy for you that he was pierced for our, what? Transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are, what? Healed. We're no better, are we? Sinners saved by God's grace. Would it be that your heart, my heart, expands to people that we might not proportionally think about that need his grace. And if it does, if we begin to think like God, you could imagine the type of ministry the Lord will give us. You'll look at people in a different way. You'll look at people in a new light. You'll recognize that his mercy extends to people like the Ninevites, to people like the Nazi war criminals. I remember growing up too, this is just off the side, but I remember growing up about with all that stuff with... um, some of the murders back in the early 70s and hearing some of the conversions of a brutal attack committed against some families of men trusting Jesus Christ. And I know so many said, oh, those are just jailhouse conversions. Are they? We don't know that. The Lord does. So make it, would it be that your heart is able to see, receive his mercy 